Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme. So we've got the former pensions minister, Steve Webb, on the show, plus the chief financial officer of NatWest. Caroline, our old friend uh, Brexit in the news today. <laughs> the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we've discussed many times on the show today, it looks like maybe... There's going to be a deal. All these meetings coming up. You are hedging your bets on that one. (laughs) Look, it's just that the rumours have been rife that there is a deal coming on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Rishi Sunak's in Belfast. But how can he please all of the people all of the time? Yeah, and uh, James Cleverly uh, is meeting Maros Seshkovic in in Brussels. And then there's that meeting in Germany uh, coming up at the weekend. But as you say... It is pleasing everybody, which is the tricky thing, isn't it? And it isn't just the EU and the UK, which is already quite tricky. But Tory backbenchers, the ERG and the DUP, not yep. to mention the other parties in Northern Ireland. No, of course. And, and the unionists have said, you know, they don't want anything that means that there is an effective border in the Irish Sea. Look, I don't understand how that is going to be delivered. But for some weeks now, we've been told that Rishi Sunak could get this deal over the line. You know, pick your metaphors, a tightrope walk, a high stakes gamble is how the FT puts it. But then on the other hand, if he does get it over the line, that would be pretty impressive. Yeah, it sort of looks like it's one of those unfixable problems isn't one of those puzzles that's completely impossible to solve. But as you say, all the mood music suggests that something is in the offing. And there's certainly been a different mood, hasn't there? I think more different mood music coming out of the two sides in the last couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. Also, um, I've been mulling over the resignation of um, of uh, Sturgeon, of course, up in Scotland. Now, the SNP, their executive committee, have decided they're not going to go ahead with this conference on the 19th of March, which is meant to be all about the future of independence. Mm. Yeah, of course, this was after the uh, UK Supreme Court uh, rejected the, the the plan for the vote. Uh, so they have this big conference in the middle of March, but that has been ditched, or at least postponed anyway, until the new leader is in place, which is going to be on March 27th. The nominations actually for the leadership close uh, next Friday, so they're doing that okay. pretty quickly, actually. Yeah. Speaking of Scotland, NatWest is headquartered in Edinburgh. I don't think that many people know that. How much does independence uh, come up as a question there? It's something that I was putting to the chief financial officer this morning because NatWest reported its operating profits, huge, more than doubled for the year of 2022, £1.43 billion. NatWest, remember, is still 45% state-owned. So Lizzie Burden and I were speaking to the Chief Financial Officer, Katie Murray, about whether the bank might face its own government windfall tax. Also talked to her about Nicola Sturgeon departing and their own 2022 financial results. So really very pleased. 5.1 billion of operating profits, um, 30% income growth, uh, 
3% cost reduction, giving us a return on tangible equity of 12.3%, which altogether has enabled us to declare um, dividends of 10 pence ordinary and also an 800 million in market uh, share buyback. So really very strong set of results. In terms of NatWest's loan loss provisions, that's been the focus for a number of banks, um, the concern around the kind of deteriorating macro environment. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we've spent a lot of time um, over the last decade or so really making sure that we're managing the, the shape of our loan, our lending book. And that's really coming through when you look at our loan loss provision. So um, a charge of 367 million in the year, nine basis points. And that's the number for me that's really critical. If I look at nine basis points, that's at a level lower than we would have seen pre-COVID. And it really reflects the the book isn't seeing strain at the moment. We are guiding the market to 20 to 30 basis points next year. So we do expect some pressure to come in from the economics. But at the moment, what we can see in our customer base is that they're coping well with the pressures that are that are there. And that's what's really delivering that, that low loan loss number. And what's your outlook for NatWest? What's the outlook for the UK bank customer going forward? So as we look at the the UK bank customer, I mean we we're we're pretty positive about them in terms of of, of where they are. We spend a lot of time and um, really working with them in terms of financial capability and health checks. And I look at what's happening in their credit card use. We can see that they're still spending. We can see that they're still paying paying off. But look at mortgages. Although the volumes are a little bit lower as we move into this year than they were last year, which were really exceptional. It's sort of forty five billion of of new mortgage lending. You know they're managing their debt. And part of that is because they've got strong deposits behind them as well in terms of the savings and the extra funding that came into the economy throughout the, the COVID time. So overall, there's definitely worry and there'll be some customers that are taking strain. But in the in the main, what we're actually seeing is an improving savings um, and savings trend and um, really mm. strong, strong money management, I think, going on. And Katie, I detect a Scottish accent. NatWest's Edinburgh-based. What's your thinking about Scotland in the wake of Nicola Sturgeon's resignation? What are the political risks to the bank? You know, look, for us, we've got a really good relationship with with all of government. Um, you know, Nicola, um, First Minister, has been a tremendous public public servant, and we we wish her wish her well. But our relationships and our Scotland is incredibly important to us um, as as part of our our business. Obviously, we're headquartered there. Naturally, I am I am Scottish, so a particular special place in my own heart. But we know we'll continue to work and work with with the Scottish government as they as they go through this this uh, period of re-election. Okay. Um. On the independence question, is that is that a risk factor that you consider? I mean, it's something obviously we've thought of from time to time. It's not something that that absorbs a huge amount of day day to day activity. I, th- I think we will continue to see how that evolves and work work with it. In if if it were to come if it were to come to pass, but it's not something that we we spend a huge amount of time debating on a day to day basis. Um, I mean, it's still hugely important, obviously, because um, NatWest is is still a taxpayer owned, forty five percent or so. What are the chances now, given this strong quarter um, and the positivity around the bank's results, of of a windfall tax for NatWest? So, if we if we look at um, windfall taxes, I think it's really important to remember that the banking sector in the UK already carries, I think, two um, extra taxes over other sectors. You know, we're probably the high, we're definitely the highest tax sector um, within the UK. We'll be the highest tax banking sector um, globally. You know, we contributed two point two billion pounds to the the exchequer. Um, last year, in addition to what we we've obviously paid as part of buybacks and dividends in terms of our ownership structure, so um, we do we do think we we pay a good contribution to the UK economy. 
But that that that's not going to stop the the government potentially from from doing that. I mean, certainly they've they've imposed windfall significant windfall taxes on oil and gas. I mean, that could be, um, you know, that could be the same also for for banking, surely. Well, I mean, we already have a three percent extra corporation tax, and we also already have a banking a banking le- levy as well. And of course, you'll be thinking about the housing market as we've had rates rising. I'm always hearing conflicting outlooks. Some people are talking about a crash, a collapse. Others, merely a correction. What's your outlook for 2023 in the housing market? Yeah, so, so when I look at housing, what we see is probably more of a, a correction. I think the people use very kind of dramatic language, which I think doesn't always help the the, the UK consumer, but in our own economics on a kind of blended basis, we are looking to 6.6% fall. And it's important to put that into context sitting here in 2023. That's far less than the rise we've had in the last couple of years. So that really is a, is a kind of correction. But what we do still see, although the new housing market is, is a bit smaller this year, which we kind of expected to happen, good demand um, in, from, from, from customers as they, they go about sort of getting a home of their own. Okay, and um, we've been speaking, uh, Katie, a lot to fintech, neo banks, apps, whatever you want to call them. You know, the challenger banks, etc. A lot this year, um, they really are kind of coming into their own. It seems to me, and they're grabbing customers. Barclays underlined this. Are you worried about that? You're having to offer better savings rate. Is there evidence that people are leaving you for these, um, you know, for for online banking, for apps, etc. So what's really interesting, you know, we we bought a small fintech earlier in the year, Rooster Money. It's a it's a, a pocket money account. It accounts for nine hundred thousand new customers that we've had this year. That's that's a pretty um, staggering kind of customer acquisition. Uh, um, level. We also continue to attract a um, significant number of customers at a more mature age. So once you leave that kind of pocket money level, but what we what we've done um, with fintechs is we look at them a lot. We've made three different acquisitions this year. Rooster Money, which I've already talked about. We've gone into a partnership with with Vidino, which is a banking as a service proposition. And this last week, we announced an acquisition of a small fintech who plays in the savings and pension Mm. um, end of the market. So we view them as really positive. They um, come with great ideas. We're very interested in some of the technology that they've built, and we can lock that into our own systems. So very, very excited about what they deliver. Do they have to pay better rates to savers versus the main bank? So that that comes that's a whole different kind of combination within there. But certainly, my ability to raise funding is 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 far cheaper and more effective than theirs because of the result of the the strength of our deposit book and also the strength of our presence in the wholesale market. So you do often see some of the better rates that are offered, particularly for longer term money, are at some of the um, the the smaller banks who need you need more um, funding. What I would say, if you were to look at our one year rate, it pays three point two five to three point seven five. At, at the moment, so a very a very competitive rate there as well. Or our digital regular saver is paying six percent at the moment. So that was Katie Murray then, the CFO of NatWest. Quite interesting that she ended on that thought around all of the extra customers that they got from pocket money apps, from fintech companies. The thing is, they don't really usually pay much interest. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I fascinating thought on the uh, on these on these fintech on these modern apps that uh, everyone's using uh, with their savings. 
it's become so easy to move your money around. And, you know, back in the day, NatWest could rely on people leaving their money sitting on in a poorly paying account. And, you know, the big banks do have some quite poor savings accounts. Now, it takes about three seconds to move your money. Yeah, but I know that you're very on this and you might move your cash around, but loads of people still don't. And that's that's the thing. So that's kind of why we're asking uh, Katie Murray about whether that's a threat to them or not. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Ewan Potts. This is your daily guide to the corridors of power. Now, here's a view. The UK has one of the best pension systems in the world. 
That's the headline in a piece by Bloomberg opinion columnist Merrin Somerset-Webb. Now, while the UK's main state pension is pretty mean, in fact, it's actually the lowest in the developed world, according to the OECD, Merrin says that taken more widely, the UK pension system is actually really excellent. Yeah, so we wanted to get to the bottom of this. Uh, and so we spoke to the pensions guru, Steve Webb. He is, of course, a former pensions minister himself, Liberal Democrat MP. He's now a partner at Lane Clark and Peacock. So we started off by asking him if he agreed with that kind of really rosy assessment of the UK's pension provision. I think the pension system is great for some but there's an awful lot of people for whom it doesn't work very well. So if you are a man, if you are in good health, have a good job with a good workplace pension to top up your state pension, then everything's fine and the system works very well. If you're self-employed, if you're in erratic employment, uh, you know, if you're invested in a small DC pot which fell in the market last year just before you retired and so on, there's a whole raft of people for whom the system is not working very well and unfortunately, that group is probably going to grow, whereas the group who've got it absolutely all taped is probably going to shrink. How do we provide for poorer people? And I'm, I'm talking about people who've really put nothing aside for retirement. And how, and how do we compare to other countries? Well, as you said, the, the state pension, although it's being improved, you know, that people talk about the triple lock on the state pensions being some sort of grotesque, unaffordable mechanism. But even after over a decade of the triple lock, we still have a pretty modest state pension by comparison with most. And that's because our system is designed for you to have two pensions, a state pension and a workplace or private pension. Now, the sort of people that you're talking about there will build up something through a workplace, uh, perhaps in a low paid job, they'll be automatically enrolled, there'll be a bit of an employer contribution. But typically, that could be quite modest. And, you know, if you're talking about a retirement that could last 25 or 30 years, a, a modest pension pot eked out over decades doesn't get you very much. So you have to make sure that the state foundation is a firm one. And that's why the triple lock, a decent state pension, you know, it'll be 10,000 a year from this April, is absolutely essential, particularly for women who on average will tend to have much smaller private pensions. Because we do top up at the, at the lower end, don't we? I'm, I'm thinking of uh, housing benefit or what used to be called housing benefit and, and, pension, and pension credit. We do. So we have, we have a safety net, but the safety net of pension credits itself is just below the rate of the new state pension. So uh, broadly, they're the same number. In other words, we kind of think people shouldn't live on less than this 10,000 a year people retiring today. And if they haven't got to that because their state pension records are met or perhaps they've come into the country partway through their life, we will top them up to that kind of basic level. But when the Pension and Lifetime Saving Association did their sort of benchmarks of kind of good, average and poor retirements, the state pension on its own just gets you to this absolutely basic, you know, just about pay the bills kind of level of income, not even enough to cope well with shocks. You know, you need to replace the car. You need a few thousand pounds or something. People don't tend to have a lot of buffer. And so when you have unexpected 10% inflation, the people at the bottom of the pile really do need help. And that's why, you know, all these government schemes have had X amount for pensioners, but three times as much for poor pensioners because they just don't have that bandwidth when things don't work out well. From the government's point of view, how sustainable is the public pension system? Because, you know, the triple lock means that the actual bill for it is going to go up in in quite a large amount um, from this year. Well, I mean, this year specifically, the pension will go up in line with inflation, 10.1%. That's the biggest number in the triple lock calculation. Now, um, in cash terms, that's a lot. That's 10 billion or more cash. But 
public revenues are rising in line with inflation plus you know if, if people are getting you know wage increases if if the economy is growing albeit not very much but you know as the economy grows faster than inflation then an inflation linked pension is very affordable ironically the challenge comes when you're trying to just gradually ratchet up the state pension as a share of the national average wage which is what the triple lock's trying to do it, yes the bill goes up but um there are other cost mechanisms you can bring in the pension age being one so you know the government's just doing a review at the moment of state pension ages so ideally i think you have a realistic pension age and a decent pension rather than what we've had in the past it's probably a rather low pension age but a meager pension and will demographics have to play into that as well very much so so um when the government did a state pension age review five years ago they assumed what we'd had for the previous century would continue which is significant improvement in life expectancy at retirement things like you know we've stopped smoking as a nation we don't go down coal mines much anymore wonder drugs and the nhs have changed things so you know for all sorts of reasons life expectancies have been growing and growing and growing that process has now stalled so it's not going backwards yet on average it is for some groups but on average it's not but the assumption the government made when it last reviewed the state pension age which was you know we're going to go on and on and on living longer in retirement just hasn't materialized and that was pre-pandemic that wasn't a pandemic thing it had already ground to a halt so you know you can't just keep jacking up pension ages regardless of the fact that you know we've stopped seeing these dramatic increases in life expectancy one of the reasons that the uk has a lot of money put aside in private pensions is very juicy tax relief which has been around for a long time last year that cost the treasury 52 billion pounds and now that is clearly something that the chancellor's probably got his eyes on do you worry that it may be chipped away at which is something we've we've seen in the past well as you say they they thought about doing a sort of big comprehensive systematic review thinking from first principles why we have relief designing a new system and even George Osborne in 2016, who tried to do this, just decided it wasn't worth a candle. Now, that was in the run-up to the Brexit vote. He didn't want to upset people. But, you know, treasuries looked all the time at doing things completely differently and backed away because of all the losers they would create. So in the end, they've just chipped away at lifetime limits on saving, annual limits on saving. And the worry is that every time they do that, it just gets more complicated, more unpredictable. I mean, even freezing things, the lifetime limit, it's been frozen for, for five years or will have been. And that means somebody who plans thinking that, you know, a bit of growth in their pension pot is fine, suddenly find the growth in their pension pots, take them over a tax limit and they've got a tax bill. So what we really need is some stability, some clarity about what the system is for, because we do have tax breaks to encourage people to save in a pension because the state pension on its own isn't enough. So you know, there's a reason we do it, but it's just got so complicated and so unreliable in recent years. Do you think those changes to the lifetime limit and those other changes were a mistake? Well, I do. Um, partly the complexity. I mean, there's no doubt that things like the, the limits for, you know, it is genuinely the case that top doctors, consultants who we desperately need to keep in the NHS have resigned, retired because they've just had enough. They've been getting big pension tax bills, sometimes you know, bigger than their wage. I mean, just just perverse consequences for a particular group so not everybody's in that position but you know that's an example of how you can get it wrong the irony is that the government's had no consistency so first of all these limits were raised then they were lowered then they've been frozen now there's speculation in the budget they'll go up again because the government's now worried about people over 50 being what they call economically inactive uh, early retirement perhaps post-pandemic 
And so maybe the government thinks if we raise these, some of these tax limits, people who'd stop saving in a pension, maybe stop work even, will start work because they can then build up a bigger pension. I don't believe it for a minute, but it wouldn't astonish me if the next move on pension tax limits was up rather than down. Um, at risk of asking you to mark your own homework, how successful do you think <laughs> auto-enrollment has been, uh, which was introduced when, when, when you were in charge? And, and have we learned anything from other global experiences in pensions since then that perhaps, you know, are there changes to the system that should be made? So I think if you think of auto-enrollment as, a, as a, a football game of two halves, it's kind of like half-time and we're 1-0 up. You know, it's been a great start. 10 million people now saving for pension who weren't saving before. Uh, big employers to small employers phased in. Contribution rates stepped up to 8%. You know, half-time, good, good progress. But the problem is we just can't get back out on the pitch again. We've got stuck. You know, we've got to 8%. That was five years ago, nearly five years ago. And the government just won't now move those contributions up do more for groups who are missing out, like the self-employed and so on. So we've wasted the last five years. So what we now need is, even if you couldn't do it today, you know, cost of living pressures, pressures on business, we can't ask more to go in today, just a timetable for the next move, because we, you know, everybody knows 8% is not enough, but how do we get to 10 and 12? It can be done, but we, we just need to actually have a government committed to a timetable for doing it. Um, so that's, that's really the big worry about water enrollment. In terms of the global picture, I mean, funnily enough, people from around the world have been coming to see how we did auto-enrolment. Uh, you know, it is held up as one of the models. It was really successful, very high staying in rates. So, you know, that's a plus. But where the UK has been learning, I think, from other countries is, is the collective DC provision, the, the sort of thing common in the Netherlands or the Scandinavia or Canada, where instead of having your own little individual pension pot, you're part of a big collective. And although this isn't a rock solid guaranteed pension, there is some sense of a target pension, a guarantee that the pension will last as long as you do. And that's the sort of middle way pension between the old traditional final salary mm. and the new individual pot. And, and I think the Royal Mail is going to be the first to run such a scheme. But the governments are currently consulting on expanding this kind of idea of collective pot of money pensions, which could be an exciting development. Well, that was Steve Webb, former pensions minister, now partner at Lane, Clark and Peacock. Great to get his uh, view on this complicated issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think the pension, to my mind, looks further and further away. But anyway, uh, let's also talk about what's happening this weekend, the Munich Security Conference. So the Prime Minister's actually going to this event. Sometimes he uh, vacillates on whether he's going on these foreign trips, but he's actually going. It's a three-day huge event. Obviously, the focus is on Ukraine. And he's doing a panel with Bloomberg's uh, European correspondent, Maria Tadeo. So that's on Saturday. We'll speak to Maria about it. Yeah, we're good to discuss that on uh, Monday. Yeah, they call it the Davos of security, don't they? Because he didn't go to Davos, Davos. Uh, but he did go to COP in the end. You remember those, that whole to-do? on again, off again. Mm. It was a bit confusing. Even with the issue of Ukraine itself, we weren't sure if the Prime Minister would go. In the end, he did. But he did in the end, yeah. So this will be interesting to see what happens this uh, over this weekend. That's it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcott and John Wasserman. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepgood. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.